Section 24 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18. The Troubled Years of King Edward, Part 2. King Edward found it difficult to trust anyone but the family of his queen. Yet a semblance of cordiality was still kept up with Warwick. When, in the middle of June, Edward's sister, Margaret, left London to be married to Charles of Burgundy at Bruges, she rode on the same horse behind the earl. She embarked near the Isle of Thanet. A fleet of fifteen ships conveyed her to Schlaus. By easy stages, Margaret and her attendant ladies proceeded up the canal to Dame near Bruges, and on Sunday, July 3rd, she was married in the latter city to Charles the Bold by the Bishop of Salisbury and a papal legate. The marriage was a great triumph for the Burgundian policy of Edward IV and the Woodvilles. It was important politically and also economically, as Flanders was one of the oldest commercial markets of England. But Henry VI's wife, Queen Margaret, could still look to Louis XI for support, more than ever, in fact, now that Edward IV was committed to Charles of Burgundy. The enmity of Charles and Louis, which has been so well described by Sir Walter Scott in the novel of Quentin Durward, was deep and lasting, and shook Europe to the very foundations. To Louis, nothing could be more convenient than the continuance of civil war in England. Therefore, the Lancastrian cause was still kept alive by French doles. At the end of June, Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, as he was still called, although attainted, was brought to North Wales, along with fifty men and a little money, by three French ships. He landed near Harlech. This castle, which was now closely invested by Lord Herbert, had endured a severe though intermittent state of siege for seven years. Jasper Tudor could not relieve it, but he created a vigorous diversion in North Wales. Raising a part of the country in his support, he plundered and burned the royal town of Denby. But Lord Herbert, with a strong force, estimated at ten thousand men, met him in the field, scattered his men, and compelled him to fly. Harlech did not hold out much longer. Its last hope was gone. On August 24th, the eve of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin, David Abenon, the captain, surrendered at the king's mercy. The whole garrison at this time was found to be just fifty men. They were taken up to London, but only two suffered death. Their names were Elwick and Trubloat. It is not known why they were singled out for execution. They were both of noble rank. Lord Herbert, in consideration of his services at Harlech, was given the earldom of Pembroke, which the attainted Jasper Tudor could no longer hold in the eye of the law. Among those captured in the castle was Jasper's twelve-year-old nephew, Henry, subsequently King Henry Seventh. In spite of this success at Harlech, Edward, although unconscious of the fact, was in a very perilous position. Warwick, it seems, had resolved to assert himself in deadly earnest and to show that he could be a kingmaker once more. There is no proof that in his opposition to King Edward he was holding treasonable communications with Queen Margaret. The Earl and she were two old enemies to come easily together. There were undoubtedly Lancastrian plots being hatched in France and in England. Of these, 
Edward seems to have been well aware. Through his agents, he was able to unmask them. Toward the end of the year, 1468, two Lancastrians were arrested and executed. The fleet of King Edward had been mobilized in the autumn and had swept the channel, October through November. By the end of November, the fleet had returned to the Isle of Wight, reporting that there was just now no danger from Queen Margaret. Thus Edward may have felt secure. The Lancastrian cause was reduced to the lowest point. Its feeble plotters simply cumbered the gallows at Tyburn. But it was not from Lancastrians that the danger came. The year 1468 had ended without any disaster. But in the spring of 1469, the Earl of Warwick went to Calais to take over in person the governorship, which hitherto he had administered through a deputy. From this time, events moved very quickly. Warwick had the complete confidence of Edward's brother, the Duke of Clarence, a man who was not honorable enough to serve his brother in a secondary position. Edward having as yet no son, Clarence might hope to succeed to the throne in preference to one of the king's daughters. At Calais, Warwick was perfecting his plans. Outwardly he carried on the policy of King Edward, journeyed to meet the Duke of Burgundy, and kept up friendly relations with that power. The Burgundian chronicler, Varon, was invited to Calais, with a promise to receive the information on politics that he was so desirous to obtain. For nine days, Warwick entertained him with magnificent hospitality, but vouchsafed no information, promising, however, to be more expansive if Varon returned in two months' time. The shrewd Burgundian had no difficulty in seeing that some deep scheme was being secretly brought to perfection. For one thing, the long-talked-of marriage between Clarence and Warwick's elder daughter Isabella was shortly to be completed. Clarence, with George Neville, Archbishop of York, had come to Calais about the beginning of July. The marriage ceremony was performed by the Archbishop on the 11th, a week after the departure of Varon. Next day, July 12th, Warwick and Clarence made a proclamation in Calais full of complaints against the government of Edward and announcing their intention of proceeding at once to England to set the matter right. Meanwhile, a serious rising had broken out in the north of England. At the end of May 1469, many men took arms in Yorkshire under Robin of Reedsdale. Whoever Robin of Reedsdale was, he is a type of those popular country captains like Jack Straw or Jack Cade, who from time to time in medieval England voiced the grievances of the rural districts against the central government. The insurgents originally complained of the exaction of a thrave of corn by the monastery of St. Leonard's, but their grievances went further and included ill-government or lack of government of the same kind as had been complained of in the reign of Henry VI. The chief points in the complaints respecting King Edward were his reliance on favorites, the Woodvilles, bad administration of law and justice, and excessive taxation. Robin of Reedsdale had 60,000 men in his following. This is perhaps the usual medieval exaggeration, but they were not all peasants. A number of gentlemen, some of Lancastrian sympathies, others of the party of the Earl of Warwick were known to be among the insurgents. Another simultaneous insurrectionary movement in Yorkshire was under a captain called Robin of Holderness. 
he cannot have been in the interest of the Nevilles at all, for the demand of him and his men was that the family of Percy should be restored to the earldom of Northumberland. The present earl, John Neville, brother of Warwick, naturally felt no sympathy for this last movement. Although his force was small, he met the insurgents outside the gates of York, put them to flight, captured their leader, Robin of Holderness, and had him beheaded. But he did nothing to disperse the rising of Robin of Reedsdale. King Edward felt bound to come north in person. Yet he only gradually recognized the seriousness of the situation. In June, he was engaged in a royal progress in East Anglia. Then the inaction of the Earl of Northumberland gave him ground for suspicion, and the presence of Warwick and Clarence in Calais together made him uneasy. On July 9th, he addressed letters to them and also to the Archbishop of York, ordering them to return to England to attend upon him in such peaceable wise as they have been accustomed to ride. Two days after these letters were written, Clarence and Isabella Neville were married in Calais. Edward, at the time, can have known nothing of this. Warwick had already made up his mind to return to England. There can be no doubt that he was all along in communication with the leaders of Robin of Reedsdale's insurrection. After the marriage of Clarence, he lost no time in crossing over to Sandwich. From there he passed on to London, gathering as he went along great numbers of the men of Kent. The citizens of the capital made no difficulty about receiving him. Edward was at Nottingham with only a moderate force, waiting for the Welsh levies which Lord Herbert was bringing from the west. On the advice of Lord Mountjoy, he sent Earl Rivers and John Woodville into safekeeping at Chepstow, as owing to their unpopularity, he believed their absence would strengthen his position. The northern men were now marching southwards. Warwick, with his following, was coming up from London. King Edward looked like being caught between two forces. But before this happened, the northern men had already intercepted Lord Herbert's small army. Herbert, lately made Earl of Pembroke, had been joined on the way by the Earl of Devonshire, who had also considerable forces. But the two leaders could not work together. They separated, and Herbert alone gave battle to the northern men. The scene of action was at Edgecote, a hamlet in Northamptonshire four miles from Banbury. Near the village are three small hills forming a triangle within which the fight took place. The date was either July 24th or 26th, 1469. The Welshmen of Lord Herbert's force were in great spirits, believing the ancient prophecy would come true to the effect that having expelled the English, the remains of the Britons are once more to obtain the sovereignty of England as being the proper citizens thereof. However, they were disappointed in their hope, as the northern men inflicted a terrible defeat upon them, slaying, it is said, as many as four thousand. Neither King Edward on the one part, nor Warwick on the other, was present at the Battle of Edgecote. Warwick and Clarence joined the insurgents soon after the fight, and saw to the execution of the prisoners. Lord Herbert and his two brothers suffered death. This must have taken place without any legal trial. King Edward was left practically without supporters, 
for his only permanent following consisted of his bodyguard of two hundred archers. He came to meet his brother and the Earl of Warwick. The encounter took place at a village between the towns of Warwick and Coventry. Edward, on their first presenting themselves, felt, as was natural, extreme indignation, and showed them a lowering countenance. But when they protested that they were in firm allegiance to him, and that they had no other intention than to free him from unworthy counsellors, he became more calm. The fact of the matter was, he was in their power, and had no alternative but to accept their protestations. But his mind can scarcely have been at ease, especially when he saw the two Woodvilles, father and son, executed for being his friends. They had been taken from Chepstow Castle, whither they had gone for refuge, and by Warwick's orders they were executed at Kenilworth. King Edward, after his meeting with Clarence and the Earl of Warwick, had been transferred first to Warwick Castle, afterwards for safekeeping to Middleham in Yorkshire. Warwick had thus again won the direction of affairs. He held the king, the northern insurgents seemed to have gone quietly back to their homes with a royal pardon. But these domestic troubles inside the Yorkist party had another effect. They gave an opportunity to the Lancastrian gentry to make a rising. In fact, among the northern insurgents who originally followed Robin of Reedsdale had been some prominent Lancastrians. Warwick had not scrupled to use these to bring King Edward under his power. Now, having captured the king, he found that he could not by himself allay the Lancastrian tumults. One such tumult or rising was especially formidable. Sir Humphrey Neville, a Lancastrian, though probably a distant relation of Warwick, raised the men of the extreme north of England close to the Scottish border. Warwick, who was not yet prepared to throw in his lot entirely with that of King Henry, was unable to cope with this rising. His name alone was not sufficient to make men follow. A proclamation which he issued in the name of King Edward was pointedly ignored. At last, the Earl had no resource left but to release Edward from Middleham Castle and let him go freely as king to York. When this was done, people were found to follow Warwick in the name of King Edward, and as a result, the rebels were speedily routed. Edward, conscious of his power, returned to London. He arrived about October 13th with a good following of nobles and others. Warwick remained in the north. George Neville, Archbishop of York, accompanied the king, but did not enter London with him. Clarence stayed away also. Edward himself spoke publicly of Clarence, Warwick, and the Archbishop as his best friends, but the men of his household had another and perhaps a truer opinion about them. The year 1469 ended in peace after a great council had been held in London at which Warwick and Clarence attended. Certain changes were made among the king's officers. The family of Neville received a further honor in the betrothal of Edward's eldest daughter, aged four years, to George, the son and heir of the Earl of Northumberland. If no son was born to King Edward, it was possible that this young man might one day become king, as consort to the Queen Renyant. Warwick's elder daughter was already married to Edward's brother Clarence. Now, Edward's eldest daughter was married to Warwick's nephew.
Whatever rule of succession should be observed, it appeared as if one branch or another of the family of Neville would one day gain the crown. But Warwick could not wait for that day. Early in 1470, new troubles arose in Lincolnshire. They began with the inhabitants resisting the demands of purveyance by an officer of the king's household, who was also a Lincolnshire landowner. At the head of the insurgents there soon appeared Sir Robert Wells, son of Lord Wells. This Lord Wells had been one of the insurgent leaders in Robin of Reedsdale's host, and belonged to an old Lancastrian family. But Warwick himself was believed to be at the bottom of the rebellion. Edward did not at first suspect this. One day he went to have supper with Archbishop Neville to meet Warwick and Clarence. Just before supper, Lord Fitzwalter whispered into the king's ear that one hundred armed men were lying nearby to seize and carry him off. Edward immediately left the house and got on horseback and never stopped till he was safe in Windsor. But the king had no proof, and for a time peace was kept between him and his great subject. End of section 24